0: Well, James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Do you want to know how it is that you can draw nigh or near to God? I think you do, or you wouldn't be here this morning. Of course, the way we draw nearer to God is through his word, through the scripture. Because as we look into the word of God, we grow deeper in love with its author. And I trust that you realize by this time in our study of the book of Revelation that we are not here just merely to highlight the main events of the book and to get a general idea what it's all about. We are here to draw nearer to God. And the way we do that is by carefully examining everything that he has for us. We believe in this ministry in digging deeper. We believe that the deeper we dig, the more treasures we will find. At one point when we were searching for a name for this ministry, we even thought about calling it the Treasure Hunter Bible Study. came up with the Living Word instead, but I think that's an appropriate name too because we are treasure hunters. The more we dig in the Word of God, the more treasures we're going to find. And some of those treasures we'll, we'll discover, we'll uncover this morning as we progress through those first five verses. Now, um, we have finished, finally, we have finished with the first three lessons on introducing and interpreting the book of Revelation, and this morning, as I said, we're finally going to get into the scripture itself as we look at the prologue to the book of Revelation. And we'll be covering verses 1 to 5a, so see, we don't really even get through all five verses. We only cover the first part of verse 5. And in these verses, we're going to um, discuss a number of important details about the book. First of all, we're going to find out who the subject is. You already sort of know that. Uh, we're going to look at the source of the book. We're going to discuss the scribe or the writer, the author, the human author of the book, the specialness of the book, and the salutation of the book. Now, a few of those matters we have already covered in our introductory lessons. so we're going to just... Review them very quickly, and then we're going to move on to a more detailed study of the things that we will be addressing for the first time this morning. And by the way, I did get my hair cut. You're all looking, and I know you're all noticing, and thank you. And my daughter said that um, everybody who complimented me, I was to get their name and you could call her for an appointment. <laughs> Connie, my 15-year-old, did it last night. I think she did a good job. I'm really pleased with it. But she said to make sure I told you that she did it. If you don't like it, she doesn't want you to know that she did it. <laughs> all right, let's look at, first of all, the first uh, part of verse 1, the source of Revelation. <laughs> let's look at Revelation 1, 1a where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. I'm going to stop right there for now. Now, as we have mentioned previously, the subject of the book of Revelation is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of St. John the Divine, as many of your books your Bibles say that is incorrect. The first verse clearly tells us that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the main character of the book. He's also the theme of the book. You know there are many sub-themes in Revelation, but the main theme is Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Furthermore, this is not only the revelation not only the unveiling about him, but it's also he is also the source or the giver of of the book so it is all about him and he is the giver of it actually we find that there is a fourfold sequential transmission of this book how it came to us and that is given on this outline here first of all the ultimate source was god the father we see this by the way in the latter half of that verse where it says and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant john who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. We see in those two verses, really, the fourfold sequential transmission. It came, first of all, from God the Father who gave it to God the Son, or Jesus Christ. Then Jesus Christ gave it to who? Who's it saying? Look at the last part of verse 1. He sent and signified it by... So Jesus Christ gave it to an angelic messenger. We don't know who this angel was. Perhaps it was Gabriel. We don't know, Uh, but he did give it to an angel messenger, and we will see as we go through the book of Revelation that angels are very prominent in this book, and we're going to have a lot to say about their function and their ministry as we progress through the book. So here's the first time we read about an angel. So, God gave it to the Son. God the Father gave it to God the Son. God the Son gave it to an angelic messenger. Who did the angel give it to? John. And John wrote it down for the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's at the top part of verse 1. Show unto his servants. Those are Christ's servants. In other words, John wrote it down for believers, for you and I. So, that is the fourfold transmission of the book. And all of this transaction is given to us in this first verse so that the readers of the book would know that the idea and the contents of the book didn't originate with John, but that the true source, the ultimate source of the book of Revelation is who? God the Father. John had not had pickles and ice cream for dinner that night before he went to bed. This is not just an imaginative piece of spiritual fiction which he dreamed up in his old age. He was merely the special agent who was chosen by God the Father to record the book which would bless and even change the lives of those who would read and understand and imp- apply the impact of its content. So revelation was given to us by God, And it was given to us, as verse 1 also states, to show unto his servants, believers, the things which must shortly come to pass. God has a very specific plan. There's the angel giving it to John. God has a very specific and a special plan for this earth and for mankind. And he has actually really been revealing this plan this purpose that he has for mankind and earth, in prophecies which are scattered throughout the scripture. But in the book of Revelation, he draws together all the threads of prophecy which are found in all of the various parts of the rest of the Bible, and he weaves them into a detailed picture of things to come in the latter days. And all of this forms a beautiful tapestry of truth for us, a tapestry which shows us the magnificence of our God and of our Savior. Because we find that there is no power in heaven or on earth or in hell which can frustrate the ultimate fulfillment of God's plans and His purposes. His will will be done on earth as he has decreed it to be done in heaven. His kingdom will come, whether men or Satan like it or not. So we need not ever fear that the prophecies of this book will not be fulfilled. Unlike many false prophets of days past and even of days present, prophets, false prophets like Edgar Casey. And uh, Jean Dixon, I'm sure she's one you've all heard of. I actually have a picture of her. Astrologers, mediums, gypsy fortune tellers, the National Enquirer. Anyway, all of these false prophets. We don't need to fear that the book of Revelation won't be fulfilled. Like many of their false prophecies have not come to pass. Because Second Peter... Chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. We need to take heed of this sure word of prophecy. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If we should ever question whether the fantastic predictions of the book of Revelation will actually come to pass, we only need to really remind ourselves of the flawless track record which God already has. There have been hundreds of biblical prophecies literally and meticulously fulfilled in the past, many of which, like the book of Revelation, were long-range prophecies um, concerning the distant future. And these predictions, were they went far beyond the ability of either men or angels to predict, you know, either by way of guessing or by analytical reasoning. And all of these past prophecies were fulfilled. They were fulfilled, even if they were long-range, they were fulfilled right to the detail. Now, because the Bible is unique... In that it not only contains prophecies, you know, and a lot of the other holy books of other religions, quote-unquote holy books, don't even dare to have any prophecies in them because they know that if they mess up, they will prove that they aren't really holy. So the Bible is not only unique in that it does contain prophecies, but it is unique in that it also has a 100% accuracy rate. And for that reason, it is an extremely important book for every Christian to study and to master. And we do not need to, to wonder if the things in it will be fulfilled. They will be. God has shown us over and over again that what he says will come to pass. It's a book about real history, history, future. It's a book about real people, some of whom I believe are even alive today, and it was written ahead of time by the one, you know, who stands and lives outside of time. He is the eternal one. Since every single person who has ever lived, or every single single person who ever will live, is to be a participant in at least some of the events that we find described for us in this book. Here's one example, the great white throne judgment, um, or... Perhaps you'd rather go to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, wouldn't you, than to the Great White Throne Judgment? I surely would. But everybody who's ever lived or whoever will live is going to be at some of these events, either the Great White Throne, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the Lake of Fire, the New Heaven, the new, New Earth, the Millennial Kingdom. Since everyone will be at one of these at least, if not more than one, it is vital that we understand these events and that we prepare for them, or in some cases, that we prepare to avoid them. And if you already have made sure that you are going to avoid some of these events, you need to learn the book of Revelation so that you know how to warn your friends so that they can also avoid some of these and make sure that they can participate in the good ones. The new heaven and the new earth, the millennial kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb, those are things you do want to participate in. All right, let's look at the second part of our outline, the scribe of Revelation. And for that, we'll look again at the second half of verse 1 and go and read verse 2. It says, And he sent and signified it by his angel, that was Jesus, unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. The human author or the human scribe of the book of Revelation was the Apostle John. Now those of you who were with us last year when we looked at the Lord's crucifixion and his resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances, you may remember Christ's last words which were spoken, or at least his last recorded words spoken to the Apostle Peter. They were words concerning John who was quite a young man at that time. He was probably maybe even a late teenager, 18, 19, or 20 years old. The Lord had said to Peter, if I will that he, and he was speaking there of John, if I will that he, John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee, Peter? You follow me. Follow thou me. That's what he said in John 21, 22. Last recorded words of the Apostle of Jesus to the Apostle Peter. And they were concerning John. Now even though the Lord did not actually state there, and we looked at this, he didn't actually say that John would still be alive at the time of his second coming. That was the way that the disciples and the other early church believers understood his words. And so they believed for a long time that John wouldn't die until the Lord returned. But that isn't what the Lord had meant. He was really just telling Peter that he has an individual plan and purpose for each believer and that Peter shouldn't, you know, be concerning himself with what the Lord would do with and through other people. You know, whether John would have to die like he would have to die, a martyr's death. But that Peter instead should concentrate on following Christ to the best of his ability. But there is a sense in which the Lord's words to Peter were prophetic. Because John did tarry, you know, he did live long enough to see the resurrected Savior's return. And he saw it, you see, in the vision which he received while he was on the Isle of Patmos as an old man. In fact, he described the wonderful scene of the Lord's actual second coming in Revelation chapter 19. So you see, he was alive and he did see it. He was a first-hand eyewitness, even though it was through a vision, which we don't exactly understand how that worked. He... um, He did actually see the Lord's return at the second coming. And according to all the available extra-biblical records and traditions which we have at our disposal, John did outlive every one of the other 11 disciples. All of them had long since gone to a martyr's death um, when more than 60 years later, John was used to be the scribe, the human scribe, for the book of Revelation. And then here, according to verse 2, we see that Revelation was not only given to John by Christ through an angelic messenger, but that John bore witness of the book of Revelation. Now, I do need to tell you that liberals will try to tell people and do try to tell people that John was not really the author of this book, not John the Apostle anyway. They say it was some other John. You know, they try to discredit the book of Revelation, so they say it wasn't apostolic. It was some other John. So they will, you may hear that as you go about your ways or pick up books on Revelation. However, verse 2 clearly states that the John who wrote this book, we do know it was a man named John, because he says there, John, in verse 4, and also I think it's again over in verse, yeah, 9, where he says, I, John... So we know the author was definitely a John. But verse 2 tells us that the John who wrote this book was the very one who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that is clearly terminology which identifies him with the author of John's gospel. What did he do in John's gospel? He bore witness of the word of God even started out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he also gave testimony, firsthand eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's not only did he do that in the gospel, but it's terminology which is used repeatedly in John's gospel and also in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you know, the epistles, the little small epistles. Of John that we also know for sure were written by the Apostle John. The phrase bear record, which can also mean bear witness or bear testimony, is very characteristic of the Apostle John because it is a phrase which occurs, as you can see up here, 44 times in his writings. It appears 44 times in John's Gospel and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But in all of the rest of the New Testament, that little phrase only appears 25 times. You see, he was not only emphasizing the fact that he was bearing witness of the very Word of God, verifying to us that Revelation was inspired by God himself, but he was also bearing record, he goes on to say, of the testimony of Jesus Christ, verifying that Revelation also came, the book of Revelation also came from Jesus Christ. And it is a testimony of his person. And the word testimony, which he uses there in the second verse, is also very characteristic of the Apostle John, because he used that word 30 times in John's Gospel and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, whereas it only appears seven times in all of the rest of the New Testament. So I do believe that this book, the book of Revelation, was truly written by the Apostle John. Actually, verse 2 contains John's threefold verification of the record of Revelation. He confirmed, first of all, that it is the Word of God, second of all, that it is the testimony of Jesus Christ, and third of all, that it contains the things he, what? Saw. John verified to us that he was actually permitted to see the great future events. In heaven and on earth, which I recorded for us in this book. He saw them through the special ministry of the angelic messenger, who, it says, signified these things to him. And that verse is significant because it emphasizes to us the important fact that revelation is actually an eyewitness account of real events and real people. How it actually worked, we don't have an idea. <laughs> it's never happened to me. Has it ever happened to you? Where you were able to see and hear things in the far distant future. I would worry about myself if I had had that. But somehow or another, John was miraculously translated in time and in space by way of a vision which was given to him by the all-powerful creator, of time and space. I mean, God could do whatever he wants to do. And John was able to actually see and hear all these momentous events of the future, which he wrote down for us in this book. Now, it's interesting to realize that over and over again, and you'll see this as you do your homework, over and over again, John made the claim that his eyes <clears throat> had actually seen and his ears had actually heard the things that he was recording in the book of Revelation and these claims are even stressed it would seem by the fact that they appear in multiplicities of the number seven he made the claim I heard a total of 28 times which is four sevens and he made the statement I saw or I looked or I beheld all coming from the same Greek word a total of 49 times which is how many sevens very good seven sevens. Of course, I no, I don't have it written up there. Now we find again, we find this phrase, I saw or I looked or I beheld. We find this more in the book of Revelation than we find in any other New Testament book. So it seems very reasonable to conclude that John wanted us to know without a shadow of a doubt that he was not writing down his own words from his own imagination that he had not had something strange to eat before he went to bed. He wanted us to know for sure that he was recording precisely what he had both seen and heard. So no matter what somebody's view of the book of Revelation might be, he or she cannot avoid the fact or the claim that the book makes for itself. Some might choose to reject this book, and others might choose to refuse to believe it. Some might choose to consider it, you know, total foolishness or mythological nonsense, but they must do so in the face of the fact that the book itself claims to be the very word of God and the very testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, moving right along, let's look at verse 3. This is the specialness of Revelation. We've looked at the, um, the source. Let me show you the outline again covered the source and the scribe let's move on to the specialness of the book and this is something we've already looked at before but we'll just go through it real quickly again it says in verse 3 blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand now we've already mentioned the fact that There is a very special blessing which is offered to those who read, hear, and keep the words of this book. This is the only one of the 66 books in the Bible which offers this special blessing. I know that wore off some of these transparencies are impossible to write on. I don't know why, but that was one of those. It's the only book that offers this special blessing, and that fact alone makes Revelation unique. And it is interesting to me from the futuristic view of interpreting the scripture, which we talked a lot about last week. If you weren't here, you need to always get a cassette tape of any lesson that you might have missed because in Revelation you need to keep with the flow of things. I told you we will be using the futuristic view of interpretation. It's very interesting from this view that the emphasis of this blessing is on the words of Revelation. You notice that there in verse 3? that hear the words of this prophecy. This, to me, really refutes those interpretations that we looked at two weeks ago, which see very little significance in the words, but instead, you know, they just emphasize the overall theme of the book, you know, that it's a big conflict between good and evil and good wins in the end or for those interpretations which which tend to spiritualize away many of the actual words of this book. You see, to God, each word is significant, each word is important. And that's why I think he stresses that here in this blessing, that here the words of this prophecy. Now, in looking at the blessing carefully, we find that it is also threefold. There's a lot of threefold things in the prologue. First of all, it says, blessed is he. Now you notice that singular. The pronoun he is singular. Blessed is he that readeth. And then secondly, blessed are they, plural, that hear the words of this prophecy. And the third part of this blessing is blessed are they, the they is implied, who keep those things which are written therein. Why is there a change in the pronoun from he to they well in the days of the early apostolic church very few people you know this was way before the days of the printing press and of course some of these letters were just written and so very very few people had a copy of well no probably nobody had a copy of the entire new testament at the end of the first century but it was even a rare thing to have a copy of one of the letters written by one of the apostles that were canonized into scripture so there would if they did have a copy for example of revelation letter from john to the seven churches there would be one who would stand in front of the assembly and would read it to the people so that's why it says blessed is he that readeth and then of course the blessing was also invoked upon those who would hear the words as they were read however for both the reader And the hearer, the important thing was that they keep, and the Greek word for keep means to observe or to pay attention to what was being read and what they were hearing. In other words, what was written. That was the important part, was that they apply it, that they pay attention to it, that they observe it. All three of the verbs... Also, we don't see this in our English, but the word hear, the word read, the word hear, and the word keep. All three of those are given in the present tense in the Greek. So the implication is that there should be a continual reading, a continual hearing, and a continual keeping of the contents of the book of Revelation. So when I learned that last week, I decided that that was really good. I was glad to hear because, you know, we have studied this book already. And some people say, well, why should we study something that we've already studied in this ministry? Some of you in this church have just gotten through studying the book of Revelation. So you say, well, why should we do it again? Well, actually here in the Bible, it says that we should be continually reading it, hearing it, and keeping it. It should be something that we're always You know, like they say you should be in the Psalms all the time. Well, you should always be in Revelation and always be remembering the things that are going to be happening probably very soon on this planet. Because knowing these things, I think, helps us to keep our lives purified. And also, continually being in the book of Revelation means that you're going to continually be be blessed by the Lord. Because it's the only book that promises that special blessing. Now, it is the first of seven blessings. Wouldn't you know there'd be seven? Seven Beatitudes or seven blessings in the book of Revelation. This is the very first one, so if you want to write your Bible, you can put one outside of that. Verse 3 of chapter 1. And this special blessing for the reader, the hearer, and the keeper of the book almost seems to anticipate the fact that there would be so many who would neglect it and who would ignore it or who would attempt to explain it away. And as I mentioned in an earlier study, it is very interesting, I believe, that the single book in the Bible which promises this special blessing is the one book that is most neglected. So don't you think the Lord knew that anticipated that and that's why he gave this blessing for those who are willing to read it study it so expect a blessing this year if you'll stick it out you will receive a blessing as we said before that's god's promise not my promise okay moving along we'll go to the salutation of revelation and that's found in verses four and then the first part of verse five it says john to the seven churches which are in asia grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. This is all we're going to cover this morning. In John's salutation here or in his greeting we could call it, We find, really, the first of many sevens. This is the first time the word seven is written. We've already talked about a lot of sevens, but this is the first time we find the word seven recorded for us. First of many that we're going to come across as we study this book. And it is the apostles' greeting to the seven what? Churches. Located, it tells us, there in Asia. Now, the word Asia here refers to the Roman province of Asia rather than what you might be thinking of today as Asia. Not, it is not referring to the continent of Asia, you know, which includes China. It's, it's not the continent. The seven churches which are specifically mentioned for us, if you look over at verse 11, you'll see the names of those seven churches, they were located, as you can see on this map, in the western half of what we call Asia Minor. And today, I think I have a modern day picture. Here's here's the seven churches right there. Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Ephesus, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those seven are located in this uh, western half of Asia Minor. And today, that is known as what country? Who knows? Turkey, right? There it is. Turkey. Now, We might ask, why was John only inspired to address the book of Revelation to these seven churches? I mean, we know that there were more than just seven local churches in Asia Minor at the time Revelation was written. There was, for example, the church of Colossae. And there were other churches there as well. So why were other churches not included in this book, the book of Revelation. It was only specifically addressed to seven. Well, as we've already discussed, we discussed this last week, the number seven is very significant in the book of Revelation and actually throughout the whole scripture. Um, It is the biblical number which symbolizes what? Completion and perfection. God always completes his work, if you think about it. It's really fantastic, but he does. He always completes his work, whatever that work might be, in groups of sevens. For example, why are there seven days in a week? Well, because that's how long it took him to complete and rest from his work of creation. And his program for Israel, which is laid out for us in Daniel chapter 9 is for a period of 70 weeks of seven years. And there is now, of course, a temporary pause in that program. But when that last seven-year period of those 70 weeks, which is the period of tribulation, the tribulation, when that last seven-year period is over, then God's plan and program for Israel will be complete. Did you know that there are seven colors in a complete and perfect color spectrum? Did you know that there are seven musical notes in a complete and perfect musical scale? Did you know that Jericho's wall fell and the job was complete when seven priests with seven trumpets and all of the people marched around the city on the seventh day a total of seven times? Did you know that there are exactly seven feasts of Israel which were established by God to complete and perfect his prophetic calendar? A lot of significance in the Jewish calendar of feasts. That would be a wonderful study one day. Did you know that Christ spoke from the cross a total of seven times before he completed his perfect work of redemption? So seven churches were chosen to be the addressees of this final book of Scripture because those seven symbolically represent all churches everywhere throughout the church age. Christ, through John, wrote specifically to seven literal churches in what we now know as Turkey. But in actuality, you see, he was speaking to all. The information that he wrote them is intended for the complete church. So that is why there were only seven. But that doesn't mean it's not for us. If you're a member of his church, this book is for you. Okay, um, by the way, under this section, I forgot to show you that. We're looking now at the salutation under this section. We're going to look at three parts to the seven churches we just covered. Now we're going to look at um, from the triune Godhead, and then lastly we'll look at the twofold blessing. The book of Revelation wastes no time at all in ushering us right into the very presence of the triune Godhead with particular emphasis upon which member of the Trinity do you think? Christ, The Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for this is that everything that will happen in the 22 chapters of this book will be viewed in relationship to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, because God has no plan and God has no purpose for this planet and for people apart from his son. Well, John opened Christ's message of revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor with the salutation of what? Two words grace and peace you see that in verse four grace and peace and that is a very common salutation which we find in i think almost every one of the epistles of the new testament the epistles of paul and speaking of paul this is one of those treasures I was telling you about earlier. Did you realize that the Apostle Paul was also inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to just seven churches? Had you ever thought about that before? Well, he was. He wrote to the Church of Rome. That's our book of Romans. He wrote to the Church of Corinth. That's where my ancestors come from, those carnal Corinthians. That's the first and second letters that we have to Corinth. Then he wrote to the church of Galatia. He wrote to the church of Ephesus. That is the one church that got letters from both Paul and John, Ephesus. He also wrote to the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae, and the church of Thessalonica. You check out your New Testament and you'll see there were only seven churches he wrote to. His other letters were written to people, like Timothy. So isn't that interesting? And that is a total of seven But anyway, and I think, again, it's the same message that I just told you with regard to him really writing to the complete church, and that's why the Lord's just picked seven to indicate that to us. But Paul always expressed his salutation of grace and peace as coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice the difference? John writes the salutation blessing in the book of Revelation from all three persons of the Trinity. He says, from him which, w- what, which is and which was and which is to come. That speaks of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. He uh, has it from, notice the second word from in verse 4, is from the seven spirits which are before his throne. We'll talk about that in a minute. That is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the third from is in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So, see, his salutation comes from all three members of the Trinity, whereas Paul's always just come from God the Father and God the Son. I don't know what the significance of that is. I just thought I would point it out to you. Anyway, the first one that John says the salutation blessing comes from is described as him which is and which was and which is to come and that speaks of god the father in his eternality you know he is the self-existing one who calls himself i am that i am and is referred to as the everlasting father and as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity here John is presenting him to us as the one who transcends all time. Because God lives in the present just as much as he lives in the past and in the future. Isn't that hard to think about? God lives outside of time. He cuts across all of the ages of time. And you know what's exciting to think about? One day you and I will live outside the age of time, too. I'm looking forward to that. Then it won't matter how I cut my hair because I'll always look young. (laughs) And then the greeting is also from the seven churches which are before his throne. In light of the placement of this unique name for the Holy Spirit, and this is a unique name, we'll talk about this, the seven churches, the seven spirits which are before his throne. In light of the fact that this name is placed between the names for god the father and god the son it has to be a reference to the holy spirit now there have been some bible teachers and expositors who have disagreed about this that this is a reference to the holy spirit and they think that instead it is a reference to seven great angelic spirits who stand, you know, day and night throughout all of eternity before the throne of God. However, don't you think that it would be very strange for John to have been inspired to include created angelic beings in the midst of speaking about two persons of the Trinity? I think that would be a little bit strange, like putting created beings on an equal level with two members of the triune Godhead. Also, the blessing of grace and the blessing of peace is not mediated to men through angels. Grace and peace come through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So to me, it appears far more reasonable to say that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. But why is the singular Holy Spirit referred to as the seven spirits? I mean, that is unusual, isn't it? Uh, it's unique. It's the only place in the Bible where he is referred to in that way. Well, although we cannot know for certain, this is one of those times I cannot be dogmatic because I really don't know, it could very well be that this speaks of the 7 ministry and the seven-fold character of the Holy Spirit which is given to us in Isaiah 11:2 if you want to flip over to Isaiah and keep your finger in Revelation In Isaiah 11:2 the Holy Spirit is called by 11 titles and they all have to do with his character and his ministry He is called the Spirit of the Lord the Spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's a total of seven. So that might be a reference to his sevenfold ministry and character. And also, of course, we do need to again remember that the number seven may be intended to denote to us the perfection and the completeness of the Holy Spirit. It may be a way of symbolically indicating to us that even though he is before God's throne, he also is perfect, omnipresent, omniscient deity. So that's my best guess about that particular name for the Holy Spirit. I really do not think, though, it is a reference to angels. Now, the salutation blessing is extended to the seven churches then not only from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit, but it also comes from Jesus Christ. It tells us in Revelation 5, the first part of that verse. And so this completes the truth that both grace and peace come to us through the triune Uh, Godhead, from all three members of the Trinity. And then we're given, again, a number three here. We are given three wonderful, and by the way, the number three is symbolic of the Trinity. So that's why we're finding the number three quite a bit here, too, in this prologue. We are then given three wonderful names for the Lord Jesus Christ, and these names speak to us of his three functions, or his three offices um, that he has had prophet priest and king that he has had or will have now the title the first one there is the faithful witness that title refers to the lord's past office or his past function while he was on earth during the time of his incarnation because while he was here he functioned as prophet god you know needed a faithful witness who would never deny him And he needed someone who would declare the truth of him, and truth, period, and never stop declaring it, even if it would cost him his very life. And Christ was this one. He was the faithful witness. You know, even the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah in this particular role. Because back over in Isaiah 55, 4, you don't need to go there again, but it says, Behold, I have given him, speaking of the Messiah, for a witness to the people. What did Jesus Christ come to earth for? Besides dying for our sins, he came to witness to us of his Father. To show us what his Father is like and to reveal his truth about salvation. Also, Psalm 89 speaks of Christ as God's faithful witness. And the Lord Jesus himself claimed that he came into this world in order to bear witness of the truth. Do you remember when he was standing before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate asked him, Art thou a king then? And the Lord's response was, Thou sayest that I am a king. In other words, you said it, buddy. I sure am. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And then he said, Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now the second title, so that first title given to Jesus, is about his past function as prophet. Now the second title given to him in verse 5 is the first begotten of the dead. He is the first person to have been resurrected from the dead with a resurrected, glorified, immortal body. You know, others had been raised from the dead before Jesus, but they were raised, we could really say they were revived. They were raised back with their own human flesh and bone mortal bodies, bodies which had to die again. And if you want another little treasure, let me give you a little free footnote here. The people who were raised from the dead in chronological order were. I'm going to give them to you, and I'm going to give them to you for a reason. First of all, we had the widow's son who was raised by Elijah in 1 Kings 17.22. Second person raised from the dead, and these were all raised with revived human bodies that had to die again. Second one was the Shunammite's son. He was raised by Elisha. And then there was the man whose body came back to life when his bones touched Elisha's bones. That was a strange thing to have happen. That was in 2 Kings 13:20 20 to 21. Can you imagine that guy's relatives? Then the next one to be raised from the dead was the little 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter. And she was raised by whom? By Jesus himself. First one, he rose. You know, he resurrected. And then there was the widow's son of Nain. They were actually on the way to the graveyard to bury the widow's son. And uh, he, too, was raised by the Lord Jesus. And then Lazarus, of course, in John chapter 11, he was raised by the Lord Jesus after he had been in the grave for four days. Now, I said all that to say this. Who do you suppose was the seventh person to be raised from the dead? Absolutely. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Being the seventh of course. And see, here's something you wouldn't find normally, would you, unless you dig a little deeper. Being the seventh person to be raised from the dead, dead symbolizes to us what? It symbolizes to us that he is the perfect resurrection because he is the one who completely defeated death. He is the one who was not just revived back to life in his former human body, which would have to die again. He was resurrected in a glorified, immortal body, and he was resurrected to eternal life. So Christ was the firstborn or the first begotten of the true, perfect resurrection. And you know, the wonderful fact of his resurrection guarantees that there is going to be a harvest to follow. He is called the first fruit of the resurrection and that promises that there will be the harvest to follow one day you and i too will be resurrected to immortal glorified bodies isn't that a wonderful thing a wonderful hope a wonderful sure hope of prophecy that we have And that, of course, is only true if you have trusted and truly believe in his death and his resurrection for your sake, on your behalf. So the title, The First Begotten of the Dead, signifies the Lord's office, his present office, because he is presently resurrected, seated in the heavenlies. And what is he presently functioning as? Our great, high priest it refers to his present office as priest and the book of hebrews talks all about this he is no longer the prophet witnessing of the father on earth that was his past function and he is not yet the king of kings here on earth as he will be during the millennial kingdom presently he is in the heavenlies functioning as our high priest interceding on our behalf our advocate before God the Father whenever satan tries to accuse us there is our high priest you know on our he's our lawyer for the defense okay then the third title which is given to us in revelation Um, 1 5 is that he is the prince of the kings of the earth and that of course as we just mentioned is a reference to his yet future office or function as king and actually the book of revelation is all about how he will come again to occupy his position as rightful king over this earth so in the three titles of Revelation 1.5, we have the three offices or the three functions of Christ. His past office as prophet, the faithful witness, his present office as priest, the first begotten of the dead, and his future office as king. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, third part of that section is the twofold blessing. I'm trying to get you out a little bit earlier this year. How am I doing? Not too bad. I'm almost through here. It's really amazing to realize that John had barely put his pen to paper when the Spirit of God began to use him to pour out a blessing. Of course, we already saw one blessing in, in verse 3. But now he is um, really writing us about another blessing, the blessing of grace and peace. You know, John was about to record the contents of a book which deals very, very, very heavily with the subject of judgment and destruction and awful bad things. And yet, how did God begin this book? With grace, exactly. The full fury of God's divine wrath, which he has been holding back from flooding this world ever since it crucified his son, is going to come one day soon, I believe, bursting forth upon this entire globe. And yet he began the book which tells about all of this wrath by once again reminding man that they can have what they do not deserve, and that is his grace. We are saved by what? by grace because it is his grace which gives us the faith to even believe in the first place it is his grace which loved loved us in spite of our sinfulness and in spite of our enmity with him and our separation from him and it is his grace which of course sent his son to die in our place and it is his grace which sends his holy spirit to woo us to himself through his word and of course it is his grace which even allows us the privilege to have his word because without the bible you know we wouldn't even have a clue who god is or how we might be saved we wouldn't know who christ is we wouldn't know that he died for us so it is totally by god's grace that we have eternal life. And also, it's totally by his grace that we are even able to live the Christian faith after we become a Christian because it is his grace which, which gives us the wisdom and the strength that we need for daily living. And it's also truly remarkable that in a book which deals with the very opposite of peace, you know, a book which deals with war, And bloodshed and conflict and carnage and earthquakes and famines and plagues and pestilences. A book, you know, which not only speaks about war down here on earth, but even talks about war up in heaven. And which foretells us about a horrible beast which will be indwelt by Satan himself uh, and a false prophet who is almost equally as bad, and a book which tells of rolling thunders and flashing lightnings and falling stars and about awful things coming out of the abyss and about demons controlling the world and about millions marching off to war and about blood as deep as the horse's bridle, that in this very book, God begins it with a blessing of peace. Now, what does that tell us? That in such a book like this, he starts it off with a mention of grace and peace. What does it tell us? I'll tell you what it tells us. It tells us that we have a wonderful, wonderful, and don't ever forget it, especially when we get in the midst of all these judgments, don't forget, we have a wonderful, merciful, loving God. He is holy, and he is just. And therefore, he must punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be holy. Do you want a God who isn't holy or just? Do you like to go to a courtroom and not have a holy, just judge? No. So he must punish sin. And he must punish rebellious man. And he must punish Satan. But that is not his top. Wish That is not his first desire. He would much, much, much rather give grace and peace. You know, it is not his will that any man should perish, but that all would come to repentance, Second Peter 3, 9. That is his great heart's desire. His great heart's desire is that man will accept his free gift of grace and peace through his son. But men, you see, reject that option. They laugh at that option. They think it's ridiculous. And consequently, they force his judgment upon themselves. One reason that God sent us the predictions of the book of Revelation is to forewarn mankind ahead of time what awaits those who reject him. You see, he wants them to know, in no uncertain terms, clearly what the ultimate rejection will mean, rejection of his son. So this book is a serious, clear message of warning so that men and women can choose his offered blessing of grace and peace instead of judgment. And the choice is theirs. The book is here for anyone to read. The choice is theirs. And likewise, you know, the choice is yours. And I hope, I truly hope, that you have chosen, everyone in this room has chosen, God's free gift of grace and peace through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of this earth, better known to you and I as the Lord Jesus whom we love and serve and want to know better by digging into his word, right? Right, I hope. Let's pray. Father, I just ask now that you would bless each one who has so patiently and so attentively spent their morning this very day in your word. Father, bless each family also that is represented here with your grace and with your peace, for it is in the name of the Prince of Peace, that we ask. And now, Lord, we ask that you would bless us through the ministry of these two young girls, Anna and Stephanie. Lord, quiet their hearts and help them to have the peace as they minister to us in song. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.